This is Purple Radio On Demand. Welcome to Westminster Wednesday with your host, Joe Oxley. This week, I'm joined by a panel of four. We will be discussing US politics, what the previous administration did, and what the current administration will be doing in the future to heal the American people. We will also be discussing the UK's coronavirus response. We'll be looking at the vaccine distribution and whether the third national lockdown is inevitable. If you do enjoy this show, please listen back to my old episodes. But I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, yep, so I'm, I'm Jack Thika. Uh, I'm the secretary of the Durham Labour Club. Um, I study politics, music, and a bit of philosophy, I think. Um, and yeah, I'm quite left-wing, just to warn you. Hi, I'm Emma. I'm a fourth-year history and politics student, and I'm the current vice president of the Politics and International Relations Society. Uh, hi, I'm Josh Taylor. I'm the secretary of DU Liberal Democrats, and I'm a second-year politics and history student. Hi, I'm Jonah. I'm the current president of the LGBT Plus Association. I'm a fourth year politics student and my pronouns are he, him, just to include those. Thank you very much for your uh, lovely introductions. So let's get into the first topic of today's podcast, which is going to be about Biden's inauguration. But before we go and speak about what Biden's uh, presidency will mean, uh, we need to look back at what the former president was, the 45th president of the United States, which was Donald Trump. So my first question to you, Jack, the Trump presidency has ended. How would you describe his presidency and how will history remember the 45th president of the United States of America? I would describe his presidency as a failure of liberalism. Um, And I hope that history will remember it as that and don't look at it in isolation i mean obviously trump was awful and just one of the worst presidents that the united states has ever seen not just in a kind of mechanical way as, as how he ran the office but just in his in his ideology and his politics um but i think people need to realize that trump came about because of very specific circumstances and contradictions that underlie the system that gave rise to him, and that, that is capitalism. I mean, America was a left-behind country uh, that had a lot of the places in it had been left behind in globalization. Um, whilst there's a lot of elites in America that got extremely rich because of globalization and because of um, a foreign imperialist policy of, of intervention. Um, and I mean, the, like the list of things that he'll be remembered by are countless. I mean, obviously there's climate change, uh, pulling out the Paris Agreement was just like shambolic. Um, his foreign policy was just absolutely nuts and didn't make any sense. And I think almost betrays the kind of futility of the uh, scientific approach to international relations, um, because you can't predict international relations when you've got nutter like him at the helm. Um, his domestic policy, economic policy-wise, I thought was extremely interesting because he did he played on this kind of almost it was almost a protect well it was a protectionist rhetoric of bringing jobs back to america having isolation in america in the economy um and obviously encapsulated by make america great again um i mean whilst all this was going on though he was delivering tax cuts to the wealthiest in america uh amassing to over one trillion dollars which is indefensible and i think at the end of the day even though he campaigned on this platform of bringing jobs back to America, of helping America. Yes, he did it to some extent, but at the end of the day, class interests lie in the rich and in the elite. Uh, and as a result, um, that never, it never trickled down to working class America and hasn't healed the divide. So hopefully, I, th- I, w- I want history to remember him as a product of liberalism's contradictions. Um, I think if you listen to Trump's speech earlier today where he kind of summarised his view of his own presidency. He wants to be remembered as somebody who stood up against China. He had the more isolationist trade. He had quite an unprecedented level of, low level of unemployment, which 
did stand at 3.5% in February of this year, obviously massively altered by the pandemic. It was a pretty good stock market under at least the first year, three years of his presidency, tax cuts, and then of course, obviously the appointment of three Supreme Court justices and three conservative judges. So that's how I think he wants to be remembered. Is that how I'm gonna remember him or history? Absolutely not. I think, sadly for him, a lot of the policies that he did will be very quickly undone by President Biden. His failed wall will um, be something Biden tackles in his first day of presidency. And what's quite interesting is I think a lot of his, at least domestic policies, have been to take things away. So take some tax away, deregulation. And they're not particularly memorable policies, and I don't think history is going to remember him for that. I think, of course, there's going to be a major discrepancy in his legacy, dependent on who you ask. If you ask a conservative Trump supporter, they will always claim that he stood up for Americans, made America great again. But you ask a Democrat, and they're going to cite the unprecedented levels of hatred and corruption that we saw during Trump's presidency. Uh, yes, uh, I think I agree with both of you substantially. Uh, Emma, you, you touched on this, but I'll, I'll try and reiterate it if I can. Uh, I think how history will remember the Trump presidency depends, uh, like with all history, on what happens next. Uh, because uh, if, let's say, Biden is successful and manages to undo more or less everything Trump does, then will we remember the Trump presidency at all? Um, not in terms of policy. On the other hand, if, let's say, hypothetically, Biden gets bogged down in Congress, let's say Mitch McConnell does a lot of filibustering in the Senate for two years, and then Republicans win either the House or the Senate back in the midterms, and suddenly the Biden's whole term is wasted, uh, then maybe we'll remember the Trump presidency as, as the beginning of the end, uh, the start of the process which uh, uh, would lead to tax cuts and immigration controls and all the things that you were talking about before. Let's hope though, well, I hope anyway, that if we look back at the Trump presidency, we'll remember it as an aberration, as an exception to the rule. I think uh, Joe Biden becoming president uh, could, would very well enable that. I mean, he is the ultimate uh, personification of Washington uh, political class. He's been he's been in the Senate for uh, half a century. Uh, so if if anyone is has the experience to to roll back the Trump years, it's Joe Biden. And I don't think anyone else in the Democratic Party could have beaten D Donald Trump. Uh, so in terms of policy, I think and hope he'll be remembered as an aberration if he's remembered at all. But some things I think we can safely say we'll, he will be remembered for. He'll be remembered for the Access Hollywood tapes. He'll be remembered as the president which uh, admitted to sexually assaulting vulnerable women simply because he could and getting away with it. He'll be remembered for the cataclysmic handling of coronavirus and he'll be remembered for the, the inciting of the storming of Congress. I think all of those are fairly safe bets and whatever happens in the next four years, uh, those will be in the history books for Donald Trump. I, I, I agree pretty much with a lot of, has been said. Um, uh, I think history is written by the winners, the victors, and I kind of hope that Trump is gonna be remembered as a loser. Um, Trump came in in 2016 and pretty much single-handedly has lost uh, the Senate, the Congress and the presidency. Uh, history does not look kindly on presidents who cannot get re-elected. For example, the last one was George H.W. Bush. He's remembered for lying about raising taxes. Then if we're going to go back before that, there's President Carter, who is remembered for the failure of the hostage crisis in Iran. Um, 
and also remembered just for being a peanut farmer. They don't have good reputations, and I think Trump's reputation is going to be really bad. He's uh, got, I think, I believe, 34% approval rating, which is one of the worst, if not the worst, approval rating of any president who is leaving office. And then also, I think history doesn't remember the details. We're not going to, as Emma said, we're not going to remember the first three years. We're going to remember 2020. And Trump just doesn't have a flagship policy that he can be remembered for. Obama's second term, Obama, I believe, did not achieve a lot. However, in his first term, he managed to push through Obamacare. That's what Obama is remembered for. I don't think Trump has this same flagship policy that people are going to remember in years' time. Um, more importantly, as Emma alluded to, because of executive order as the main way of passing legislation, a lot of Trump policy can just be overwritten very easily. We can go back in Paris, we can lift the travel ban, we can stop separating women and children on the border, and we can start rolling back the LGBT plus discrimination laws that Trump took out. We need to put them back in. So yeah, I think, I think history will remember Trump. Will it remember Trump kindly? No. It'll re I think he'll remember it as quite a heinous person. Okay, that was quite a daring uh, verdict from all of you there on Trump. However, I just want to um, ask a further question about Trump. Heading into 2020, it was definitely looking more favourable that he would get re-elected. And because of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, many critics say that really hampered his chances in terms of the way he's handled it. Without the coronavirus, would have Trump won a second term in office, Jack? Um, I think he would have done, to be honest. Uh, I mean, the way he's handled coronavirus has been just shambolic at best. Um, and it's, it's very akin to how, how we've handled it as well, I think. Um, uh, if it, it worse, probably. Um, and it's, I think it's the, the, the Anglophile neoliberal trait that he followed uh, and that we have followed as well. Um, and I, I mean, when you're just like so many people are dying on that scale, I think you've got to start asking questions about um, what the government are doing and why why that's happening. Um, so, but I, I honestly think like he was due to lose um, before coronavirus, and and this is why I was a passionate supporter of Bernie at the time because I thought that the only person who could heal the divide in America would have been Bernie. I mean, Bernie talks about change from the ground up. And, and radicalizing the working class and getting them out and increasing turnout, which is obviously a massive problem in American politics. Um, and Biden, I, I think if not for coronavirus, he wouldn't have been able to do that. I mean, Biden did have a perfect storm, I think, with uh, the aftermath of coronavirus and also it being Trump. I mean, he could use that like it's anything but Trump. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of, um, Democrats in America who would be more on the left and would have supported Bernie. I mean, it was the campaign, wasn't it? Settle for Biden. That's what they went for at the end of the day. Um, they voted Biden out of um, out of reluctance, um, uh, but they still did it anyway. So, but I think in in any other time when coronavirus hadn't happened, there was those swing votes in the middle. Um, it probably would have gone. Probably would have gone Trump. Um, I think crucially, presidents don't tend to lose with uh, low unemployment. It, it doesn't tend to happen, especially re-election. Uh, but I think there are two kind of factors. The first one is obviously Corona, awfully handled throughout. But also, if you look at Trump's campaign, I think cam Trump's campaign compared to 2016 was really weak this time around in 2020. Trump, I think Trump saw Bernie Sanders winning the ticket and decided he was going to run an anti-socialist, anti-left-wing campaign to, to scare especially to scare people into voting Republican. And that might work in Florida with the Latino vote in Florida, but it's not going to work across the whole country, especially when your opposition is Joseph Biden, who is the political elite. He is center-left on American politics, global, his pro-globalization. He's just quite a boring candidate, maybe, you could argue. So I think Trump's campaign, he was running a campaign against Bernie Sanders. He wasn't running a good campaign against Joe Biden, whose whole character is, I'm honest, Joe from Scranton, I'm one of you, I'm not left-wing. So actually, I kind of have to disagree with Jack. I was supporting Bernie Sanders, but I'm unsure if against the sort of red fear in America, this really fear of socialism, even if I believe it's unfounded, that Bernie would have been successful. I think Biden had a slightly better chance, especially given Trump's failure to be flexible in his campaign messaging. 
I think it's important to acknowledge that even with the monstrosity that's been the pandemic in America, 74 million people went to the ballot and decided to vote for Trump. And you have to question how many more millions of people would have been willing to vote for him if the economy had continued to be as it had been in the first three years. I think as people not living in the US, we tend to overly perhaps emphasize the cultural impact of Trump, the division we're seeing, the um, really nasty rhetoric he uses. But I think a lot of American voters vote in the way that a lot of British voters do, and that's economically voting. And if the economy is doing very well, and you don't care much for the way he speaks, but you're worried about your taxes, you're worried about, about things like that. I think there are a lot of, especially middle-class voters that are, are willing to overlook a lot of what he said. I was a strong believer that he was gonna win the election, Trump. And I think the COVID pandemic was ultimately the reason that he did lose. And I definitely think that we would be welcoming in 2020 President Trump had it not been for the pandemic. As to the two points which have been raised in this discussion, I think uh, if it wasn't for COVID, Trump almost certainly would have won the presidential election, no matter who his opponent was, because he was planning to run a campaign on the economy. Uh, and all the evidence suggests the economy would have been doing very well if it wasn't for COVID. Uh, and that was the biggest issue for Trump supporters, the economy, even despite even despite the pandemic, the economy came at the top. So I, I find it very hard to believe he would have lost if the economy had been in a good place. And as you say, incumbent presidents almost always do win. Uh, and as for the second point, I, I, I'm gonna, I agree with Jonah. I'm going to have to strongly disagree with you, Jack. I think Bernie Sanders would not have stood a chance. I think uh, uh, going to the left in America isn't a good idea. Personally, I'm, I'm not against most of Bernie Sanders' ideas. I don't think they'd be that radical in a European context, to be honest. Uh, and I was some, somewhat tempted by Elizabeth Warren initially, but after she was out, I think it had to be Biden. Uh, it had to be a moderate candidate who would bring the country together. I, I think a socialist candidate isn't going to win in those swing states in, in Pennsylvania, in the, in the Rust Belt, in those states that Biden that we all know Biden needed to win the election because that was why we had to wait a week for the results to come in to find out who finally won because we were waiting on those uh, states. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I personally think that Bernie would have galvanised its supporters in those swing states because those swing states had their own problems with, as a result of globalisation, they've had people left behind and a lot of the time that was the reason they went to Trump in the first place. And I think it's the same, it's exactly the same parallel as we see in this country with Brexit and everything. You're getting these left behind voters that at heart they're partisanly Labour, but they've gone to UKIP, they've lent their votes to UKIP, they lent their votes to the Conservatives, but because they've been waiting for somebody that, that represents them to come along, which the centre ground at the end of the day doesn't do. There's nothing it just spurs on disillusionment going to the centre because they don't feel represented by these politicians, these elites in, in the centre. And, um, and, and, and what you were saying, Jonah, about how um, Trump was planning to, to campaign on a platform of anti-socialism, uh, it's completely qualified, but I honestly don't think the American electorate see the difference in, in socialism between Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders. I think they just see anybody left of Trump, a lot of his core supporters, they just see anyone left of Trump as just... Marxist, which Bernie Sanders isn't even remotely Marxist. It's quite depressing how un-Marxist Bernie is, in my opinion. Um, but they still will use that. Anybody who is left, or anybody in the Democrat Party, really, they'll class as as this communist who's going to take over and and destroy things. But I think um, something that we really saw in the 2016 election was the fact that a lot of Bernie supporters weren't willing to vote for Clinton. They there was a a big rhetoric of I'm voting for the lesser of two evils, whether you voted for Trump or Clinton, was very much, she was not a popular candidate. However, in the 2020 election, I think those people that are on the left and um, would have perhaps supported Bernie saw the, the repercussions of a Trump presidency and I think were a lot more willing to go out and vote for Biden, whether or not they fully agreed with with his policies thinking he didn't go far enough. 
mean, that's a really important um, idea to emphasize because as well, you've got Trump's base. I, I think after four years of such division, I don't see anyone in his base moving over to the other side and suddenly voting for Bernie Sanders. I think it's become much more almost like a religion that like you stick with that base. And then Trump voters that went in his base that voted for him, I think voted primarily on economic issues such as low taxes um, and issues like that, which obviously Bernie Sanders isn't going to advocate for in the way that Trump did. I think this sort of harks to a classic issue in American politics. There's this very much this talking point that a lot of working class people in America vote against their interests. And I don't want to be um, patronizing, but I partly agree that a lot of a lot of progressive policies will be best for working class people. But um, a lot of working class people, especially in rural areas, are unwilling to vote for Medicare for all. They're unwilling to vote for anything, a perception of big government. And I think I think Bernie's problem let, let me get let me be clear i think biden's campaign was very weak i'm not especially a big fan of biden i think it was identity politics over substance but i think bernie's problem was and you can see it on super tuesday as soon as all the moderates fell in line behind biden bernie had a real problem where he on super tuesday and all the states he contested he struggled to get he normally failed between 22 to 27 percent around that mark because he has such an exciting base i'm i would say i'm part of that base however he couldn't bring in from the middle ground, from the centre, and his base wasn't enough to win the ticket. So I don't think it would have been enough to win the election either. Thank you very much for all your contribution there uh, about President Trump. But uh, now we move on to Joe Biden, who ever since he started his political career has aimed uh, for this very job. And he is now the uh, President of the United States of America for the next four years. Obviously, Trump left America uh, divided, as some of you have stated. So my question to you, Emma, is uh, how does Biden attempt to heal the American people? So I think the issue of division in America is something that we can all agree on. It's perhaps one of the most prominent features of American politics and American society in 2020. But I think recognising what this division is and how to deal with it is an issue that not many people have been able to effectively answer. Biden seems to think that healing the American people involves bipartisanship. He definitely seems to prioritize this, this rhetoric of unity and, and restoring the soul of America again. In his inaugural speech, it was um, pretty much the only thing he spoke about. He said that in order to restore the soul and the future of America, unity is required. But I think he really misses the mark on this bipartisan approach as the way to heal America um, for kind of two main reasons. Firstly, even if we're kind of willing to concede that Republican officials will be so receptive of this and it will be this unprecedented bipartisan approach, you still have the issue of the media. Do you really think that places such as Fox News and people like Sean Hannity and Rush Limbaugh are going to be very responsive to this and suddenly call for all of their supporters to support this democratic president? No. I think the most substantial change that Trump has been able to push forward in his presidency is division, significantly through his rhetoric of this fake news. People on the left and on the right are, to a large extent, unwilling to listen to each other, specifically through the media. I think Trump supporters will continue to listen to the media that perpetuates the idea that uh, Biden and the Democrats are against their values and beliefs. And I don't see the Trump supporter vying for Biden, vying for kind of um, unity, considering Biden's work with the GOP. I think secondly, it's really important to recognize that the Trump base is very different from the traditional GOP. And actually, a lot of Trump supporters seem to think that many in the GOP are part of this swamp that drained, that Trump wanted to drain. Um, reports are now suggesting that Trump is potentially starting a new party called the Patriot Party. So it's hard to see how Biden working with the GOP will be receptive to a, a group of people that don't even believe that the GOP is currently representing them. Um. Uh, yes, um, I completely agree. I think to understand the task that Biden has ahead of him, you have to really understand this division. And I think increasingly you can see a really rural urban divide in American politics. Um, so there's this book written by um, Catherine Kramer, which is basically arguing that in rural areas, there's practicing a politics of resentment. It's this idea that the rural 
the um, rural voter, they basically, they don't like big government. They're skeptical of government institutions and they're skeptical of public employees. They're very anti-state. And actually the division in America is increasingly becoming anti-establishment and establishment as opposed to class or left and right wing. And you can see anti-establishment movements on both sides. But I think Biden has a real Herculean task ahead of him. And I think if you just look at the 2020 um, campaigns, Biden was going for this white suburban vote, um, black people that live in cities. So it was, you know, it wasn't rural, whereas Trump was going for these rural voters. And I think Biden's problem is, I don't know how he can bring these rural voters in. I can't see unifying policy that they can get behind. But I also think Biden very much sees this as morality. He sees it as the soul of the nation. He sees this as character. My good character, my good example, as he said in the inauguration, can bring us together. And I just don't think it can. Uh, yeah, I think I agree. It's hard to see how Biden can be successful, to be honest. Uh, if what you mean is uh, fully uniting the American people, I think, but that what isn't quite how I read, how I heard Joe Biden's uh, inauguration speech. How I understood it was, there will always be those sort of fringe rural types who won't accept him because he's a Democrat. But and he recognizes that. But I think he is in a strong position now to reach out, as Emma was saying, to the Republican leadership in, the, in Congress. And I think they will listen to him uh, more than any other Democratic president. I think Joe Biden stands a good chance. He has a strong, well-established working relationship uh, particularly in the Senate from his very many years of experience in the Senate as a Senator and, and as, as eight-year Vice President. Um, but will that mean America is healed? No, no, probably not. I think the problem is wider. The problem is the media, like you say. The problem is uh, fake news belief. The problem is anti-establishment rhetoric. Arguably, there's also an institutional problem with partisanship, uh, with the electoral system uh, and, and other parts of the Constitution making two strong parties necessary to dominate the American political system. And there's very little capacity to bridge that gap uh, under any circumstances. Um, I... I honestly think, I, I surprisingly, I do have some faith in Biden. Um, I, th I was kind of convinced towards the end of his campaign when he did come out in support of a $15 an hour minimum wage. He did come out in support of a Green New Deal, almost. He came out in support of a Green New Deal. And I think he's looking at now um, as the Green New Deal is going to be something that lifts America out of the, the recession that's going to hit us after COVID. Uh, and I, I, I think that might, it, put, it certainly put a plaster on the divisions that are in America at the moment. Um, whether it will solve the problem, well, I, I mean, my view is that, well, while capitalism exists in the form it does in America, the nation will always be divided. And there'll always be a class that presents the ruling class and you will have right-wing politicians and demagogues that will exploit that. Um, but I think Joe Biden understands that you do need to address this problem of increasing inequality that's been a trend in the last 40 years attributed to neoliberalism. Um, especially considering coronavirus, we're seeing, uh, I think, one-eighth of America facing homelessness at the moment, um, and on to the half million that are already homeless. Um, and they are just, those people are going to be angry and are going to need some sort of um, substantive change after, after, the, after coronavirus. Okay, so there seems to be a, a bit of mix of whether he, he will actually end up achieving this sort of uh, unity at the end or not. A couple of you mentioned the media and fake news, which is probably one of Trump's standout statements that he made, uh, that he has made across the years. And Jonah, you mentioned about uh, voters being quite sceptical of big government. And I, I was just wondering whether Trump has used the power of scepticism with the truth. So I just want to know your opinion of that, Jonah. Has uh, President Trump 
convinced the large part of the electorate to be sceptical of the truth. I think Trump has done a, a brilliant job of um, bending the truth, of snapping the truth, fake news, alternative facts. Trump's actually done an extremely job. I think that he has a very easy target. Uh, people criticise the BBC for being partisan, for being biased, but if you compare it to American media, it's not at all. If you watch CNN, you're going to get a very one-track message of Donald Trump bad, morals bad, yay, identity politics. If you watch Fox News, you're going to get the opposite. You're going to get constant attacks on Obama for wearing a tan suit, for playing golf. It is so partisan. Trump has a very easy job of saying, actually, no, it's fake news because CNN kind of will always twist stuff around. I can't imagine CNN has praised Trump much. And I think because they lack the um, independent authority of, say, the BBC or Channel 4 News, Trump has been very, very successful in kind of twisting facts to his advantage and really politicising a base who already feel excluded, who already feel underrepresented and feel resentment. And if you have that base and then Trump's seen as the same, he's seen as a political outcast, he's seen, he's kind of their hero, it's very easily, especially social media as well, to build this personality, cult of personality around him. So I think, I think it will damage American politics for a long time, to be honest. I think, of course, primarily uh, Trump has been effective at um, shaping the opinion of his voters and his base. I think the, it was perhaps the most genius thing he did in his entire presidency because it meant that he could take every win as his own and every loss as somebody else's. So if you look at the wall that he was kind of almost his flagship policy when he ran in 2016, he of course failed to do so. I think it's been recorded that there is about 80 miles of this wall of over a 2000 mile border. But he was really able to blame that on Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats in Congress. He did this very um, dramatic government shutdown when he didn't get his way on the wall. And he very much is able to blame other people for his mistakes. And I think the scrutiny he faced among um, his supporters is a lot less than previous presidents had done. I think the majority of, for example, Obama supporters might would be willing to say, yes, he made mistakes here, here and here. But I don't think you see that the same with um, Trump. I also think there is an issue with people that really dislike Trump. Um, are very much unwilling to look at any of his policies in a potentially good way. For example, I think we can acknowledge the role the US played in encouraging relations between Israel and um, states in the Middle East is a good thing. He promoted diplomacy, but unfortunately, because of the way in which the US is divided, we're unable to, to recognize the maybe tiny amount of good that he did do during his presidency. And it's a real shame that people are so clouded by their partisan views and are unwilling to recognise the truth in people's policies because they are so um, inundated with news that tells them that everything the other side does is wrong. Yeah, I'd say I agree with everything that's been said so far. I think it's important to remember that this is very much not a process which started with Donald Trump. It, uh, it's culminated in him, but and and it might carry on after. Who knows? But it's a process which, as you say, is institutionalized by the media, uh, is is bolstered by neocons since the 1980s. Uh, people like Dick Cheney and and Fox News, uh, who more or less masterminded that 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 uh, process, which which Donald Trump has has uh, has made his his base out of and um did you hear the speech he made when he was leaving the, the white house um a few hours ago when he managed to to blame everyone else for everything that went wrong in his presidency he blamed china for bringing the coronavirus he blamed the democrats for procrastinating all of his uh, attempts to help the american people and he even managed to preemptively take credit any successes that the Biden regime might potentially have as while well, it's only the, 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 the groundwork I laid which enabled them to do it. So I think this is a fake news 
problem which didn't start with Trump and it's not going away in 2021. I think I have to agree slightly with Emma that in the same way a broken clock is right twice a day, every so often Trump does come up with an idea or a policy that I agree with. And I think the Democrats should look at Trump as an example of how to win these rural voters. Um, for example, uh, manufacturing jobs in America, they've been decimated by globalization, the poorest in society have been left behind, especially in the Rust Belt, the Sun Belt. However, it's not the Democrats who are supposed to be the party of the working class saying we need to build, get these jobs back. It's the Republicans, it's Trump, which is really quite perverse. And I think I have to disagree with you, Jack, that Biden will um, bring unity and help these people. Because I think if you look, I think rhetoric is one thing and policy is one thing. But if you look at his uh, nominees for his cabinet, they're all Obama holdovers. Biden is running a 2.0 Obama presidency and it's very status quo so if you look at john Kerry, who could be the secretary of the environment he wrote an op-ed where he was basically arguing the free market will solve the environment then if you look at the director of national intelligence um, she led the drone strikes under obama and i just think if you start looking at his nominations they're obama uh, globalist neoliberal holdovers and i think biden if he was smart he'd actually look at what trump did well and actually learn from trump but I think, as we say, it's so partisan, it's so politicised, it's so polarised, I don't think that will happen. Well, thank you very much for a really interesting debate on US politics. And the truth binds us all together. So it's fair to say that Joe Biden has a lot on his hands domestically uh, before he looks to the international stage. So next, I will move on to the coronavirus response in the UK. And obviously, at the end of last year, we had the good news that the UK government has approved uh the vaccine uh, which is very important for us to help um get out of this uh, dreadful situation which are, which we are all in my question to you josh is what do you think of the current government's performance with regards to delivering and administering the vaccine well anyone who's ever had a conversation with me about this government will know i i'm always very reluctant to give them any credit for anything whatsoever but i think on regard to the vaccines the international comparison is a favorable one uh, very favorable in fact uh, we were the, the first major economy to ratify the vaccines which have which have now been ratified by by the eu and the us as well it's just we we got there first uh, and uh, we're way ahead of all other european countries uh, in, in regards to the vaccine rollout. Yes, there have been issues with that, but I've, and, and I'm not convinced they will meet their target, but whether they do or they don't, the international comparison is undeniably a favourable one in regard to the vaccine and the vaccine alone. But I think that's a little bit beside the point. I think the race should be against the virus not against other countries so I think if you look at the bigger picture I'm quite right in my usual suspicion that the UK government hasn't handled this very well but if we are dealing with the vaccine issue specifically and only that I think credit where it's due I think I think if they meet the target the public will be very surprised they'll be very relieved i think boris has set a very very low bar indeed for how he's handled the corona pandemic i think it's too early to tell if they'll hit if they'll hit the target i think it's ambitious i hope it isn't just boris over promising and delivering again i think time will tell it's a very ambitious rollout i think it's the biggest um civilian kind of mass rollout in English and UK history. Originally, the target was 15 million. By the 15th of February, they lowered that to 13.9 million, Hancock and Radio 4. And obviously, there are some teething problems. So the um, Minister for Vaccine Deployment called it lumpy. In Scotland, you have a real problem of uneven supplies and Wales is lagging behind. A week ago, they were at half capacity of what they needed to be. They needed to double to hit the target. However, with AstraZeneca, they are, they are increasing it. Although, again, yesterday marks the third day in a row that it was in decline. So it's a real mixed picture. It's a mixed bag. And I don't think we'll know 
until probably the start of February for a week or two, if they're going to hit the target. However, I do agree that compared to the international scene, for once, just in this metric alone, it's not the be all end all. We're doing all right. Uh, yeah, I, it's just quite surprising how well we're doing. Um, I'll be extremely surprised if we do hit that target, uh, considering how we dealt with everything Corona related in the past. Um, but I think it's, it's probably testament to our, our health service, the National Health Service and the National Health Trusts, as to why it's been going so smoothly. Because for once, the government have thought, let's not abide by neoliberal dogma. Let's actually leave it to the state to, to deal with efficiently. Um, the people who know it best, who are the people on the ground, who are the people working in the NHS, they know what they're doing and they know how to deal with this. Um, and I mean, the TUC have come out in the last few days and said that, uh, we don't want this to be outsourced because it's the most efficient way we're going to get the vaccine out is if it's through the NHS itself. Um, and I mean, that's probably one of the most, well, I, the, the most tragic thing is obviously the deaths with the, with the, with the pandemic. But um, the fact that the government have felt the need to be ideological about it and keep outsourcing uh, the reaction to the pandemic to private companies and it's just proved them completely wrong. I mean, whether the, whether the British public will see it or not see through it, I don't know. Um, but the fact you've had, what, £12 billion for a test and trace system that has just been nothing short of shambolic um, is, is quite... It, I mean, it, it's farcical at worst, but... It, 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 yeah, I don't know. There's not really any words for it, is there? Because, I mean, there's no justification to it, but I don't think... I don't know if the media in this country will, will kind of shed enough light on it to show how bad it has actually been. I think that the government's work on its vaccination programme is undoubtedly the most successful part of their strategy throughout this pandemic. Um, whilst previously claiming to be world leading on things like a disastrous track and trace system, I actually think they can claim to be world leading in the vaccine programme. Um, 4.6 million people in the UK have been vaccinated and we do seem on track to hit the target of 13.9 million by February. Um, it's quite interesting actually, um, the Scottish Government released data over the weekend suggesting that the UK would have capacity for 3.8 million jabs next week and 5.4 million per week by the end of February, something that was very quickly taken down at um, apparently the request of Boris Johnson personally. I think this is um, representative of quite a strange shift that we're seeing in the government at the moment of, as Jonah rightly said before, they have a history of over-promising, under-delivering. I think you're starting to see the flip of that with the vaccine. I think they're scared to make these massive, bold claims as they've done in other parts. Um, and I think primarily they're doing that because we are still negotiating with pharmaceutical companies. I think the government are trying to be secretive about the amount of vaccine they have and they're trying not to overplay as much as they've previously done on our ability on vaccinating the population. Because I think there is a very much real chance that pharmaceutical companies will start to prioritize other countries in their deliverance of the jabs. And I think it will be interesting to see over the next few months whether we continue this strong supply of vaccinations or whether um, because we are starting to really well vaccinate parts of our vulnerable population, whether companies such as Pfizer and AstraZeneca will start to prioritize other countries. I know, for example, that France and Germany are both um, struggling at the moment with, with their vaccination programs and they are behind on their targets. Um, I hope that the government will continue this slightly more modest approach because I think it's much more becoming on them than this over-promising they've done in the past. Um, but I do wonder, will this strong start mean that we will have all adults vaccinated in autumn or whether we will start to see real supply issues in the future? Well, before we move on to looking back at the response, uh, which some of you hinted in your answer, uh, criticising the government, before we move on to that, um, I just want to ask uh, one last question on the vaccine. And uh, this is to any of you. Does it matter if we miss the vaccine target, if we are doing higher vaccine rates um, in comparison to the rest of the world? Does it actually matter if the government misses the target? And would the UK public see that as a failure? 
I think, yes, it does, simply because faith in the government throughout the pandemic has been really low. And as soon as you have low faith in the government, people believe it's all right to take the behaviour, the laws into their own hands. And you'll see people breaking lockdown. Do I think the increase over Christmas was just because of a new strain? No, I don't. I think people were breaking the rules. And I think that's the government's fault with Dominic Cummings, etc. I also think it's not just about hitting targets. It's also who's vaccinated. And I'm really glad that the government first changed the policy from two doses to one. And they're also they've pivoted slightly and the nine groups now include key workers. It's not just the vulnerable. It's not just the shielding. It's not those at risk. It's key workers. It's, it's teachers, it's doctors. And I'm really happy to see that happen. I'm, I'm skeptical about, uh, obviously the government have seemed to say that um, one doses will be enough. Um, one dose will be enough, but I, I don't know if that will be effective. And I know there's countries like Israel have raised concerns about this. Um, and, and one of the worst things the government have even talked about mixing and matching the, the vaccines that they're giving people, um, which, I, I mean, I, I think the, like, the, the opinion is, not it, that it might not be bad, but also at the same time, the fact that they're kind of rushing it through at the same time, not necessarily, because we've seen the like, precedent in this whole pandemic of the government not strictly following the science or following extremely shaky science as they did with the September circuit breaker lockdown or the lack of. Um, so I am quite concerned that the government in trying to meet their own standards and trying to uh, push this through are actually putting people's health at risk and the public health and um, it could end up doing more harm than good. But that's just me being a cynic as I always have been throughout this whole pandemic. I think that often the answer to my question would be dependent on what we determine the target to be. So if we're talking about the target that Boris Johnson announced when he um, spoke of this new lockdown, the lockdown number three, then yes, it would be really bad if he didn't hit the target. Because we're not just talking about target hitting or I agree to an extent with Jonah about mistrusting government, but I think what's more important is the reality of elderly people not being vaccinated against a really deadly disease we're seeing a death rate that is quite frankly disgusting 1800 people over the past 24 hours and i think the government does have a lot to answer on that account i think what's really important as well is recognizing that we're not coming out of this lockdown until at least the 13.9 million people are vaccinated and under my opinion it's probably gonna be even further than that because we have to obviously do the, the, the two doses and, and, and we'll probably have to wait some time for the immunity. And something that Netanyahu has been really emphasizing is the necessity of a continued lockdown while the vaccination program is going on. And I think that's something that Boris Johnson will continue to talk about. Uh, sorry if this is contrarian, but I'm not sure either of those things that you mentioned matter. I definitely don't think the international comparison matters. As I already mentioned, it's not a race against other countries, it's a race against the disease. And I'm not sure the short-term targets are relevant. I think they're just what the government is gonna say they can do because then they'll look good if they can. I think really we should focus on doing the job and as, as Jack was talking about, doing it right. Well, thank you very much uh, for your responses there. Um, so I'll move to the final question of uh, today's episode. And we are all currently in lockdown number three. So it's a simple question. Was this inevitable? Um, I think this is completely inevitable uh, with the new strain, but I think uh, with, which is much more infectious, it was. I think we're going to see across the world, we're seeing sort of boomeranging, Lockdown, opening up, lockdown again. But I also think it's inevitable from a point of leadership. I think I'm going to be slightly flippant here. I know Boris really wants to be Winston Churchill, but he's more like the nodding dog from the current show and has diverts because there's just a complete lack of leadership. It's been U-turn after U-turn after U-turn. U-turn on herd immunity, school meals, exam results, circuit breaker lockdown, uh, Christmas, furlough extensions. The list goes on and on and on. And I think Boris very much wants to open up and he's learned actually, no, you can't. And I think 
this wasn't until after Christmas because it's inevitable Boris Johnson will delay and delay and delay and then it gets too late and then we have to take drastic action. There's so much you can talk about with this because the whole thing has just been a chain of events where it's always been a perfect storm where everything has gone wrong for the government. And I honestly believe it is all driven by ideology. At the end of the day, they have committed to a free market neoliberal ideology that has put the economy before people and people's lives at the end of the day. They think this abstract thing of the economy is more important than human life, which I, I can't fathom at all. Um, and we saw it in the very first lockdown when the government waited and waited and waited and they never put in a lockdown until things were extremely serious. And then they made that mistake twice more, not only with the second lockdown, if you can call it that, that we had in November, where, I mean, Rishi Sunak completely ignored mainstream science opinion um, and didn't have that circuit breaker lockdown in mid-September that probably would have saved countless amounts of lives. As well, sending people into school. What, what was that all about? I mean, it's, I, I, I distinctly remember Boris Johnson going into a school and saying to people, uh, saying to the kids, they, they were kids, and saying to them, look, you can't pass on coronavirus, can you? You can't spread it. You're not going to spread it. And the kids were just looking there sheepishly saying, oh, well, no. Still, I mean, the schools were open and that was proven to be one of the biggest groups. Um, first of all, the younger age groups and then people going to university. Um, I, as much as I hate the idea of not going to university, not going back to Durham Town, um, I don't think we should have done because all we've done is go gone and spread it to the communities up there. Um, especially in the northeast, where they're where they hit hardest by it, uh, we've gone up there and, and just and spread it even worse than it already was. Um, so universities shouldn't come back, but obviously the government are thinking, well, it'll cost us money if we don't send students there because we've got to pay reparations to them. Um, but I, and like I was saying earlier, I think the crux of it comes down to is the fact that it's ideological because Boris Johnson has this idea that we don't want to let the virus affect the markets, which is what obviously it was going to do. And this is epitomised in February. I remember he gave a speech in Greenwich saying that we're not going to close our borders. We're not going to close the market down in this country because of some mutant virus in China, which has, I mean, that has imperialist connotations in itself. The idea is it's from China that it's going to, it's, it's not worth considering. Um, and uh, if, if that's something that, so this virus could potentially, and as it has done, kill hundreds of thousands of people, and he wasn't even considering that possibility of locking down. If that's the, in, and that's in a commitment to opening borders and keeping keeping markets open. If that's not ideological, I I don't know what is. Um, I will very much echo what Jonah said about lockdown being inevitable because of the new strain of this virus. Uh, Professor Chris Ritchie did say this is up to seventy percent more contagious. I think we're seeing a higher proportion as the weeks progress of COVID cases being this new strain. Um, I was willing to give the government a little bit of slack with this pandemic because it was so unprecedented. But I will say that that ran out a long time ago because they keep making the same mistakes. And again, what's been previously mentioned, I completely agree with. Boris Johnson isn't wrong to have new lockdowns and three lockdowns but he is wrong to have implemented them as late as he did and I do think that that's reflected by the very large split that we're seeing in the Conservative Party at the moment between that kind of the right of the party who are very much prioritising um, the economy and are very anti-lockdown and I think that that's an issue that not other parties are having to face because other parties seem to be more unified than the Conservative Party is. So I think he has to deal with all of these different issues within his own party before he can really come up with a policy. And I think that's reflected a lot in the cabinet as well. I see Rishi Sunak doing his work and I see Matt Hancock doing his work, but are they really working cohesively together? Probably not. I think that the economy and health and education don't necessarily have to be zero sum things. And it would be nice to see cabinet ministers working more cohesively together because, you know, like I, I do think that the Conservative Party has some, some good ideas like on, on policy. I'm not going to sit here and, and say that I don't agree with some of what the Conservative Party stands for. 
but I do worry that they're losing that cohesion and and as soon as you're not cohesive you're incompetent really because you're not working effectively with it, with each other I will say that I understand where they're coming with the um, economy because I do think that a poor economy kills people just as a virus does but again I don't think that lockdown necessarily causes the economic destruction that we've seen in this pandemic. Uh, I also agree that a third lockdown was inevitable uh, because fundamentally the reason for introducing lockdowns is to make sure the NHS isn't overwhelmed and uh, a new mutation at some point would have been inevitable and certainly after the one we've got which as you say is far more effect uh, far more um infectious uh, uh, that made a lockdown inevitable but i think there would have been one anyway even if that hadn't happened because the nhs is always under more strain in the winter uh, that's why uh, chris whitty talked about there being restrictions of some kind again even next next winter so i think there there would have been a lockdown anyway uh, but I, I also agree that it came too late. It, I know Keir Starmer was on it. I, I can't remember whether it was late November or early December, uh, saying that there should be a lockdown then. Uh, he was quite right uh, and proven right. Uh, yeah, and, and we can, I'm not sure how valuable it is to go back all the way to the start. To, to consider uh, whether the third lockdown was inevitable. I think that might be valuable if we were discussing whether it was inevitable, how bad, whether it would be this bad as it currently is in the UK. And as I said earlier, it is as bad as it gets anywhere in the world in the UK. I think maybe if things had been handled differently in the early months of 2020, uh, and if the test and trace system had been implemented better, then maybe things might not have been so bad. But in regardless of all of that, I think this third lockdown for the winter and the spring was inevitable. I think just to kind of push back at what Jack said, there was some nuance. I think you've got to be careful not to confuse ideology with ineptitude in the sense that... Um, Yes, I think they are driven by a very capitalist, very pro-market ideology, which led the fast that was eat out to help out. However, there have been a couple of times where the government has acted out of character and decided actually big government time, government intervention. It's just they've really not succeeded when they've done this. So the best example is probably track and trace, but also I don't think they've been very good at supporting everyday people. So if you look at the kind of recent scandal, um, there's the... Um, there's an isolation grant as well as a, dis a discretionary payment, which are £500 and they're given to people who are forced to isolate. And the government fostered this onto the local councils and failed to give them any clear guidance on how this works. And if you look at the rejections, so people apply, if you look at the rejection rates across the country, it's staggering. So if you look at Manchester, 83% of people who are applying for this money because they have to self-isolate are being rejected. Coventry is also in the 80s. And St Albans, is, it's at 96. And the local council is saying, listen, you're failing to give us any clear guidance. And I think that's just sort of been a running theme throughout the entirety of lockdown and the entirety of the pandemic. I, I mean, yeah, there is, of course, ineptitudes involved in this. It is the Tory party at the, at the end of the day. Um, but I mean, some of the things that are exacerbating the death count, exacerbating cases in this country, are products of neoliberal ideology. I mean, we, we're, one of, we're, we're a country one of the worst sick pay um, substitutions in, in the whole of Europe. So there's just no support. If you, want, if you need to go off work sick, you can't, you can't do that with ease without having to sacrifice a lot of your basic necessities in life. Um, that is a product of neoliberalism in the last 40 years. Um, and also the fact that you can't survive on very little money in this country is a product of neoliberalism. So people are going into work, even if they know they've got corona, not wanting to take it off because they know they can't survive out. I mean, I mean, uh, and uh, I, know, well, I know personally people who have been in this situation and you just shouldn't be faced with that, I, I, in my opinion. And it's, it's the fact that there are people out there who are having to choose between being faced with a deadly illness that could potentially kill them um, 
and or starvation because they can't afford to, to to subsist if they take time off work is just abhorrent and and honestly it's barbaric in in the 21st century i actually completely agree with everything you said but because i feel maybe it's a bit one-sided i'll i'll do the very unnatural thing of defending the government in this instance i think that maybe a lot of the criticism of the government being incompetent in the area of in, in, in the area of welfare and state intervention is a little bit harsh. I think, I'm not sure what Therese Coffey has been doing in the Department for um, Working Pensions, but I'm sure we can all remember for years and years there was talk about why universal credit wasn't working and no one was getting it. But, but no one's talking about that anymore. I think somehow that problem has been resolved, apparently. I don't know how. But I think in a lot of ways, the government has actually got its act together in regards to the welfare state. And a lot of the, the other controversies, like the whole Marcus Rashford campaign, I think actually the government are basically involved in that. And there have been a lot of private sector uh, uh, administrative problems. But I think to give them their due, the government are kind of on top of it. And they're trying. Well, we um, end the podcast with a weird um, defence of the government, which isn't uh, usually what it's like on Westminster Wednesday. Uh, But before I uh, end the episode, I would like to thank Jack, Emma, Josh and Jonah for taking part in today's discussion. If you do like uh, this to listen to this podcast, please go back uh, on to Spotify and listen to some previous episodes. But for now, have a good week. Purple Radio Podcasts. Thanks for downloading this Purple Radio Podcast. For more great content and to listen live, head to purpleradio.co.uk.